0: Welcome to NutriTanks podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials?
1: coddled, entitled, narcissistic,
2: work-shy and bloody lazy.
0: We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into NutriTank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with NutriTank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. There you are. Hello, I'm Ali Jaffe, your host, and welcome to today's episode on NutriTanks Nourish Your Mind podcast. This is part three of the integrative oncology sequence, so if you haven't already listened to part one and part two, make sure to listen to it after this. In today's episode, I'll be talking to three experts when it comes to nutrition and cancer care, so let's introduce them. First up, we've got Nikki Robinson. Nikki is the nutrition lead at Penny Brown. Penny Bron is a UK cancer charity based in Bristol, understanding that people need more than medicine to live well with cancer. In part one of the integrative oncology sequence, I had the medical director of Penny Bron, Dr Catherine Zolman, come on and speak about her work when dealing with patients with cancer and wanting to give them other options other than medication. So give that a listen if you haven't already. Nikki leads a nutrition team of three qualified nutritional therapists and offers individual consultations, group courses and cooking demonstrations alongside providing information and resources to patients with cancer about understanding the role of diet and nutrition in cancer and making informed food choices. Sticking with ladies first, we next have Toral Shah. Toral is a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner and the founder of The Urban Kitchen. She originally went to medical school with a view of becoming an oncologist, but when her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, she realised that this was not the career for her. After completing her BSc in Cell Biology, biology specialising in cancer, she worked in research and then went on to do a Masters in Nutritional Medicine at the University of Surrey, and then went on to become a Functional Medicine Practitioner. She is currently working on putting together a PhD proposal looking at the impact of stress, diet and lifestyle on oestrogen-dependent breast cancer. Torrell specialises in optimising health and disease prevention through improving food, diet and lifestyle. Torrell sadly developed breast cancer at the age of 29, just six years after she'd supported her mum through the disease. Then in 2018 she was diagnosed with breast cancer again. She was particularly passionate about cancer prevention and prevention of reoccurrence and completed her master's thesis researching the foods that prevent reoccurrence of breast cancer. As a breast cancer patient and survivor, she understands how patients might want to change their diet and lifestyle post-diagnosis. Torrell is also passionate about combating the lack of diversity in healthcare and ensuring both doctors and patients from BAME groups are equally represented within the NHS and healthcare systems. And last, but by no means least, we have Professor Robert Thomas. Dr. Rob Thomas is a practicing consultant oncologist, in other words, a cancer specialist. He's got 30 years of experience in patient care and he now leads chemotherapy services at the Primrose Oncology and Research Unit in Bedford, treating patients with radiotherapy at Addenbrookes Hospital, where he also teaches medical students in his role of Senior Clinical Tutor at Cambridge University. Prof Rob Thomas holds many professional posts, including Chief Editor of Cancernet.co.uk, Chair of Macmillan Exercise Expert Advisory Board, and Walking for Health Boards board member of British Society of Integrative Oncology and board member of the College of Integrative Medicine amongst many other accolades, it would just take up the whole podcast to list all his achievements. He has authored countless publications and books including Lifestyle and Cancer, a book that aims to empower individuals with reliable information to ensure they can make the right lifestyle choices after cancer and today he'll also be telling us about his new exciting book called How to Live such an honour to have you on the podcast today and talk about such an important topic around diet, nutrition and cancer. So if you don't mind, could you all just briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? And it'd be great to just hear from you how you became interested in both the field of cancer and nutrition.
1: Hi, I'm Toral. I'm a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner and just really passionate about cancer nutrition and food generally. Or to become an oncologist but when I was at medical school my mum had breast cancer and this is back in 1999 and in those days no one really talked about diet and lifestyle and, and breast cancer in particular we know we started to understand from research that there definitely were some links so I started to get involved in nutrition I wasn't learning anything about nutrition at medical school at all so it, it involved me digging around in dusty libraries looking for journals to try and find out what we could do to help my mom so she could A, get through her treatment and B, recover quickly. Um, I actually eventually left medical school and decided, I was very upset by how my mom's experience was, not because the doctors were great, they were great, but just because I didn't feel like we were giving cancer patients the best opportunities to heal and recover. Um, and I worked in cancer research for a while and then I went and did a master's in nutritional medicine Um, specialising in cancer and and did my course in functional medicine and it's really just about we know that diet and lifestyle um, impacts so many different types of diseases but particularly cancer we know that about 40% of preventable cancers Mm. are affected by diet and lifestyle so I just wanted to know more about that so I could help more people.
0: Such an interesting journey and Nikki?
3: Yes, yeah, so, um, so I'm the nutrition lead at Penny Braun. Um, I've been there for two years and relocated from Newcastle to Bristol to, to join Penny Braun. Um, So in Newcastle, I had a nutritional therapy private practice and I was also a director of an ethical trade organisation. And I guess I've had a lifelong interest. I was one of those um, students who was making broccoli and bean bakes instead of baked beans and bolognese when I was a student. And so I've always had an interest in food and nutrition, but it was actually a diagnosis of celiac disease um, 11 years ago. That led me to train as a nutritional therapist. Mm. And so I I I had a really bad experience with celiac disease, um, was really unwell, lost a lot of weight, and basically a gluten-free diet didn't touch it for me. Mm. And so I kind of thought there must be more to this than just taking gluten out of my diet or certainly not eating the processed gluten-free foods that are recommended. And so I started doing lots of research on the gut health, immune health, and, and it was a sort of end of one project in a sense um, that became really interesting and fascinating and also really helpful from a symptom point of view. Um, and I got sort of hooked on it. So I went on and did a master's in nutritional therapy. Um, my dissertation focused looking at, I specifically took celiac disease, but I was looking at the impact of foods other than gluten, and nutrients other than gluten on the immune system, which was fascinating. Um, and so that led me to a career change.
2: Mm. And then
3: really with cancer, And um, when the job came up at Penny Brown, I, I think it's, it's for, for me, the most rewarding and interesting and maybe challenging area to work in, in terms of nutrition field. So it was a bit of a no-brainer when I was offered the job to come down to Penny Brown. Um, and I haven't regretted a moment from it.
0: Wow, it's so fascinating with both of you that your inspiration and kind of drive from this field comes from very personal experiences with your own health and nutrition
3: and I think it's practitioners I think Mm. especially if you come to it a little bit later in life it's often it comes from that self-interest and if you're one of those people who's a really who's really into reading and researching you around things then I think it becomes something that people then see a benefit to and and transition into so yeah it's fascinating
0: absolutely (laughs) So, uh, Dr. Thomas, if you could just tell our audience how you actually became immersed in the oncology field, first of all, so why you decided to choose that as your specialty, and then how you became very interested in the diet and lifestyle world.
4: Well, for, for oncology, it's a, it's a very stimulating career. So any really young medical students want to look at what they do. I mean, it's, you want a career which is which is changing. It's going to challenge you. And I have to say, there's not a day go past where there isn't a new treatment, there's not a new surgical treatment, the radiotherapy techniques have got a, uh, tremendously changed over the last five years, resulting in better outcomes and less side effects, etc. So it, you're never going to get bored in oncology. So that's the one thing. Secondly, the outcomes are improving tremendously. So it's really rewarding to see people getting better. You know, that's what you know. We all like to see. We all like to feel we're healthy, so you do feel you are doing that in oncology not for everyone of course uh, why i changed the lifestyle issues well i haven't really changed i still do lots of mainstream trials on biologicals and things but i my the trials i design myself are very much lifestyle orientated possibly because of my appointment as a professor of sports medicine in the adjoining university uh, so i've got access to very clever exercise professionals
2: uh, but also this As we're going to talk about later in the program, there's lots of things in oncology which are helped by lifestyle, and we want to improve the outcomes for patients. So whether they're just being watched after a radical treatment or watched for, for prostate cancer, you can significantly improve their outcomes by a healthy lifestyle and also you can reduce side effects from treatments and, and, and improve patients' recoveries. So I feel, you know, I haven't gone off-piste, you know, and, and done something weird. I think it's all I'm doing is, is bringing those into where they belong. Uh, and, I, and I think going forward, more and
4: more people are going to do that as well. So I, I, I would say I've not chosen
0: to do something different. I'm trying to get the different back into normality. Absolutely. So, it would be good to start at the very beginning with some very basic cancer biology and perhaps defining a few terms, such as modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. Could you just elaborate on what these might mean?
4: Well, I suppose the unmodifiable risk factors are the genetic cards you've been born with. Um, you know, so, you might be born with a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, which is gonna give you a very significant increase of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, but you know, I don't actually like those terms, body and body All, um, whatever genetics you're born with, you have got the ability to reduce your risks. It's gonna be harder if you've got a genetic susceptibility. So you know, you can do all the healthy things and still have cancer. But the evidence is coming through, actually, that you know, if you do put yourself into a healthy state, Duty does delay when that cancer starts, and the type of cancer you get is probably less aggressive and more likely to respond to treatments. Um, so, you know, although they, they, you've said there's modifiable and modifiable, I think there's more of a spectrum rather than two camps.
0: Sure, no, that's a really interesting take on it, and something we're definitely not explained um, in medical school to actually have that more nuanced view on the risk factors. And so just to define a few things around cancer biology, could you just tell our audience the definitions of dysplasia and neoplasia? Um,
4: Yeah, I mean, I often have this conversation with patients who present with DCIS, for example, which uh, which is technically not a cancer ductal carcinoma in situ, but in effect they are cancer cells within the organ, which is in this case breast ducts. Uh, But before that, when there's a spectrum, so you have a normal esophageal cell, for example, and then you expose it to Helobacter because you've eaten too much processed sugar and meat, and then you get a thing called hyperplasia. So those cells um, grow faster and they divide faster. And we know that a lot of mutations happen spontaneously. So, you know, not, they don't happen because you've had a cigarette, they have happened because those cells are, are dividing more rapidly, but of course, if they are dividing more rapidly, they're more likely to get a spontaneous, spontaneous mutation, and then, of course, if that cell survives the mutation and it, is, it is goes forward and the daughter cells have got that mutation in it, they become slightly funny-looking, they become dysplastic. So when you look down a microscope, you don't really see a esophageal cell, you mm-hmm. see a cell which looks a bit bigger, the nucleus is a bit bigger, they're dividing more rapidly and again, they then go on uh, with further
2: mutations to become malignant and when those malignant cells then break out of the basement membrane, you know, as I say, in the breast, that becomes a like breast cancer or something
4: tumour. So uh, that's what those terms mean, it's the spectrum from a normal cell to a cancer cell.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much. And so there's such a huge body of research in this area, so it would be good for our listeners to just start off with some very basic um, cancer biology and perhaps to define the terms modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors. So we'll let uh, Dr. Uh, Rob Thomas discuss the cancer biology, but do you both want to just talk a little bit about the modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors?
1: Yeah, I think that with all cancers, and with all lifestyle diseases, like heart disease and diabetes, there are modifiable risks. So we know with cancer, I mean, well, the non-modifiable risks is age, so we can't help that we grow older. But conversely, you know, our diet, our lifestyle, smoking, um, our weight, uh, what we're eating, all of these are modifiable risks. And actually, some, you know, with with lots of cancers, um, I think that, you know, some of the ways in which these risks actually impact cancer biology are still to be, you know, understood. And like, for example, sugar, something that we talk about quite a lot, you know, one of the modifiable risks is eating a diet that's, you know, reduced sugar, but at the same time we're still trying to understand how that can impact the body, because we know that it's not sugar itself but it's more the insulin, and the insulin signaling that impacts the cancer cells and, you know, insulin is actually a um, it promotes cell growth Mm -hmm. and it stops cell apoptosis, which is like programmed cell death, so it basically, normally, cells that are growing out control, but immune system can catch them and, you know, deal with them, but unfortunately, sometimes with insulin, it it actually, so if you're eating a diet that's really highly spiked in insulin, where with lots of kind of high GI or sugary food, then that can have an impact on
0: cancer too. Mm. And so along those lines, um, I know that you wrote a fantastic blog about the data from World Cancer Research Fund, and it's been estimated that around 40% of cancer cases could be prevented. So you've spoken about sugar, but could you just outline some of the recommendations that the um, World Cancer Research Fund report actually brought to light when it comes to nutrition?
1: Yeah, and, and World Cancer Research Fund is an amazing uh, research organisation. They collect absolutely every single piece mm. of research that's ever been done with diet and lifestyle and cancer. So they're not just doing their own research, they're looking all the well and they're global. But the, the recommendations are um, be a healthy weight, move more, enjoy more grains, fruits, veg and beans, avoid high calorie foods, limit consumption of bread and processed meat, limit consumption of sugar sweetened drinks, For cancer prevention, don't drink alcohol and don't rely on supplements. And those are their kind of simple 10 kind of guidelines of what you can do to reduce your risk, help reduce your risk uh, with you know, to work with
3: cancer prevention. Sure. Just... Just to add to that, Ali, I think um, there's a nice quote from the WCRF in their 2018 report I often used with my introductory talk to patients. Mm. And it say there, so it, it, they say there's accumulating evidence now on how diet, nutrition and physical activity can have an impact on the biological processes that underpin development and progression of cancer. And so that progression thing I think is so interesting because obviously we're working with people with cancer. Mm -hmm. So really just talking to them about how to reduce their risk isn't really so helpful, but now we'll be getting this evidence that actually what we eat and how we move can affect the progression of cancer, then it becomes really interesting to people who have cancer to hear. Some of the things they talk about, the reasons for that, um, so obviously diet is a source of carcinogens, Um, so particularly then looking at processed meat, burnt foods and alcohol, um, and I think one of the interesting things when we talk about modifiable and non-modifiable, we can think about genes as being non-modifiable in a way, but they are modifiable mm-hmm. as much as we think about epigenetic expression. So I think that diet can influence epigenetic expression. Um, nutritional factors influence DNA repair and damage. Obviously, Toros talks about obesity. And then I think the effects of diet on the microbiome, which is a merging area now in terms of, well, with all chronic and acute, or chronic disease particularly, but the effects of diet on the microbiome and how that might then influence um, many processes, including inflammation, et cetera. And I think there's also another point with that is, if from those WCRF recommendations, if people are eating a nutrient-poor diet, then their, their capacity to deal with stresses and like mm-hmm. cancer is vastly, um, is, is vastly reduced as well. So there's lots of factors that sit behind those recommendations, which I find really interesting. So for some people, just the recommendations are helpful to hear. And for those who've done a lot of research, we can now dig underneath those and say, well, these are the reasons why, which I think is really empowering for people. Absolutely. Yeah, I- so, yeah, I
1: absolutely agree. I think that we, there's so much we don't know, but now we're digging deeper. And I think the epigenetics and nutrigenomics and how the effect of our lifestyle diet on our gene, and that's really going to be the future for personalizing cancer nutrition. Um, what do you think, Nikki?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think this, we're, we're on this cusp now, I think, of, so the microbiome, epigenetics and, and this whole personal field, I think, is going to transform what we're doing and how we work.
1: And an exa- yeah, an example of that might be, just to put this into context from a clinical perspective, Ali, is that we know um, that phytoestrogens, which are foods like flax seeds and mm. you know, some nuts and all those things, and we know that, and soya, of course, which we can talk about more, but phytoestrogens, have, people weren't sure whether they were quite helpful to eat if you had estrogen-dependent cancer or not. And now the latest research has shown that yeah, while they're, whilst they are mildly estrogenic, we also know that only a third of people have the gut bacteria to actually convert the phytoestrogen into the more diazol, the more uh, potent form of estrogen that's in our body. So again, there, some people, will be really good for them to eat all those you know, phytoestrogenic foods. And for other people, perhaps you know, moderate that. So I think it's a really exciting field going forward. I think our no understanding and having all the scientific techniques that we now have to test people's gene is gonna make a huge difference to personalising cancer care.
0: And is there are there any hotspots for this practice across the UK or across the world when it comes to actually looking at the genetics of someone and personalising the care thereof, or are we still a bit far away from it?
1: So we have, there are companies in the UK, there's LifeCode GX, there's Omnos, there's a bunch of, a couple of others that actually do test your, um, genet, your single nucleotide um, polymorphisms and kind of gene expression. And so we don't know all of them, but we do know some SNPs can affect how your body and the physio- physiology works. Um, and so then you can then start to look at um, epigenetic expression and changing your diet and lifestyle. Uh, you know, for example, I just had mine. Some of my genetics are, and for example, I know that my conversion of serotonin to melatonin is poor, and I'm a poor sleeper, and we know that having good sleep is really important for preventing cancer and also for preventing progression, And when we look at the circadian rhythms and the whole kind of link mm-hmm. with inflammation in the body. So I think that we're, we're at the beginning stages. It's early, early days. It's something you have to pay for. It's not something that's provided mm-hmm. and it. Until this is, I mean, and it's not regulated as, up, as such in the way that not everyone's doing the same thing. So once the science improves, it becomes cheaper, then of course it's something we can bring out into the mass
0: public. Absolutely. And we'll discuss uh, more of those areas within epigenetics and inflammation a bit later on in the pod. So we've had a bit of insight into the lifestyle and genetics and it is really important when talking about cancer and dietary interventions to keep in mind that no one treatment or diet will work for everyone as cancer is not a binary disease process for instance some cancer purely genetic whereas others have a greater luck, other are much greater affected by lifestyle factors so uh nikki could you just tell us a little bit more about the work at penny Brown and how you go on to create personalized nutrition advice for the cancer patients you see
3: okay so um, nutrition is one of the key pillars at penny brown and our whole life approach to supporting so our integrative approach to supporting people with cancer and our aim is very much to help people understand the role of diet and nutrition in cancer um, share the evidence-based information and probably most importantly to really offer a more practical kind of how to support how to make those dietary changes in a way that's both easy and, in- um, and we do that so ordinarily we do that at our national center most of the time um, near bristol um, where we have a range of services so i have a small team that, and we offer courses um, master classes cooking demonstrations and to ones and so that's what we normally do at the moment everything's online on zoom um, and on telephone which has worked remarkably well um, and you're right that um, there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to diet and nutrition with cancer or, or, or generally. Um, and I, I think there's, there is obviously different evidence around different cancers and diet nutrition. But actually, I think on the main, for most people, there are some key principles that are the same for most people most of the time. And so I think we always start from there. And Penny Brown's plate, um, which we developed our health eating guidelines, really are a good basis for people to start. And then what we tend to do is we start there and then we look at people's particular circumstances, their preferences, their cultural context, and then really do those kind of personal adaptations from there. But I think, yeah, when we come, and we'll talk a bit about this a bit later, but there are, I think, some really key principles that work for most people most of the time. Would you agree, Toral. Yeah, no, I do.
1: I think, you know, like... Just simple things, whatever culture you're from, eating mm-hmm. the rainbow and getting that real diversity in different types of fruits and vegetables, it's something that it doesn't matter what your actual food is and your diet, you can vary. it, And I think it's something that's been really interesting working with um, different communities, particularly of black and Asian and ethnic minorities, that you can still bring some of those principles in so they can eat, and whether their vegetables might be different, um, but you can still do the same thing. And I think it, I think that's... I think this personalization, so if you're not trying to make everyone eat kale when they mm. hate kale properly. It's just so important that you know you go with people's preferences because you know, particularly when people going through treatment, some of them can't take anything. They're not even getting enough calories, and you just need to focus on that and making sure they're eating something as opposed to nothing at all. And then if you're working with mouth sores or lack of taste or metallic taste of chemotherapy, then it's about really trying to find something that actually tastes good for people. And it may not always be the most nutritious way you want them to end up, but at least they're getting something into them, which means that they've got enough energy to go through the treatment. And we have to think about that
0: too. Absolutely. There's so many different factors of where they are within the illness. And I totally agree with you that it has to be a patient or people-centered approach Definitely taking into account the cultural aspects and just what their preferences are at the end of the day Because they need to be able to feel the pleasure with food and not just eat for its nutritional qualities So both of you you both work with your clients or patients and you're both completely accredited um, nutritionists, so how do we go about regulating and making sure that the nutritional advice for cancer patients is more regulated because For instance, I remember watching a while back Giles Yeo's um, documentary, Clean Eating the Dirty Truth, and there was some crazy man in America who made this whole alkaline diet centre for cancer patients and were getting people to use their life savings to come over to the States. I remember an army woman in particular and have no traditional chemotherapy and to come over for... Um, this alkaline diet infusion and she unfortunately ended up dying and it was just so devastating on the whole family and everything and she was basically completely conned so how do we as a whole you know public approach allow this information to be regulated and to still kind of highlight that conventional medicine like chemotherapy radiotherapy is so important but the lifestyle modifications go so well as an adjunct
1: I think it's so difficult, particularly with social media and internet, because I had a somebody email me um, this morning who said that they've given up, there were diagnosed with breast cats in December, they've given up sugar, dairy, wheat, and they just said they've lost those weight. So I, I think that the problem is that people get these diagnosis and then they look at the internet straight away, and because we don't have enough dietitians and nutritionists, in the uk who work with cancer centers and uh you know within the nhs it does mean that people do go outside and i think bringing all of this back in and and having um nutrition as part of the cancer treatment in the nhs would help regulate and the problem is there's so much research out there from um Bloggers and anyone who's experienced cancer maybe doesn't understand the science behind it, and everyone seems to give up all these things and it doesn't really work. So, I think we do need to regulate it a little bit more and make sure that if we work integratively with the NHS and with our healthcare system, Mm. then hopefully people will start to get better advice.
0: Absolutely, and I completely agree with you. Just because someone's in someone's story, whether it's online or wherever they read it, there's certain dietary interventions work for them. It doesn't necessarily mean it will work for that person reading it, which is why you need to have an accredited uh, physician, clinician, nutritionist sat in front of you to help work with what your um, situation is and what your preferences are.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. One of the challenges valley as well though is that it's still very common for patients to be told there's nothing to do with diet and nutrition and cancer. There is no link at all. And therefore and people have therefore read that there is, rightly that there is. And therefore, because they're told there's no link, rather than being told there is an association and you should go and find a qualified, experienced practitioner, they're told there is nothing. Mm. Don't bother with just go away and eat what you've always eaten or
2: worse, eat worse things. Um and, and therefore I think it leads people to go and find maybe
3: more fringed um or you know un based approaches from people because they're told there is nothing to do and so they don't sort of don't trust the system. So I think that's a really big problem and a big education on both sides mm-hmm. that we get into evidence based um from both the from, from both the
1: mainstream and the and the kind of other practitioners as well. Sure. And the other thing is that there of people who work. Yeah, with patients in hospitals who are just say, oh, just eat everything, just say, eat all the calories when you're having chemotherapy and stuff. And that's not current advice. And the problem is that, you know, most doctors and nurses and you know, other people have not had any nutrition training. Mm. so They don't really know anything. So that's why they're still being told, oh, it's nothing to do with it. And actually, you know, I'm a cancer patient too, and I go to the front and the whole conversation every time is, I'm always like, do you want to know what the latest stuff information is? Because they don't know. Mm. None of them know. And it's this yeah, Royal Master is one of the leading cancer hospitals, yet no one knows. You know, there's no one really working there. Yeah. I mean, they're dietitians, but they're not nutritionists who help you know, with
0: supporting... There's depression. such a mismatch. It just seems so disconnected. And it's crazy because it all fits together and it should be delivered to the patient as, you know, it's all for their care, whether it's medical, whether it's lifestyle. So we've got Professor Robert Thomas with us who who is an oncologist, and it would be great to hear from your uh, perspective what you say when a patient comes to you and says, is there anything that I, I've got cancer, is there anything that I can do with my diet? What do you say? Um, well, we're, you know,
4: we're, we're unusual where we work, because we've been interested in, in diet and lifestyle for over 20 years, so people have come almost expecting to hear this conversation, but um,
2: nevertheless... Um, it's different i hear you just talking about regulation i mean with an
4: nhs structure i have to say some of the dietitians they the, what they tell patients is very regimented they stick to the basic four things calories you know vitamins minerals etc fiber um and patients want generally a lot more than that uh, and it's changed probably five years ago there weren't maybe
2: that interest but i have noticed that a big change of people wanting to support themselves and wanting the Correct advice.
0: So many doctors who aren't switched on to this, and there are so many patients who aren't actually receptive of their doctor being switched on to it because they still go in, especially in primary care, wanting that physical prescription of a drug that's a quick fix. So, from a clinician's point of view, who is in secondary care, working with um, oncology and you know, working with conventional medicine, and um, your interest in diet and lifestyle. How have you kind of adapted your practice and just how you've worked to be able to give out traditional and conventional treatment alongside diet and lifestyle? And have any patients who have come to you ever been slightly confused at what you're telling them and why? Um,
4: Yeah, there is a skill. Like any practitioner, you can't just suddenly walk through the door and start blaming people for for their cancer because they haven't had a healthy lifestyle, of course. You'd get in big trouble if you did that. Um, so, that, you know, obviously, first and foremost, you need to explain the disease, and we have lots of other things to help with that explanation. Over the years, we've developed videos and websites and things to make it easier. And once you feel they've understood their main options, it's often a pause in the consultation where they'll say, you know, is there anything else I can do, doctor, or or you might bridge the subject. Uh, and in the majority of cases, it's the timing which matters. Of course, in our research unit you know we've got at least five ongoing studies which involve sending someone to the gym eating a food supplement or, or something so they are sort of expecting it with me so it is easier mm. uh, but nevertheless the timing is is quite important i've had probably in the last 10 years I've had one or two complaints of people saying you know i came to you to talk about chemotherapy and all he was talking about was um you know was going for a run and stopping sugar etc uh, which of course wasn't true, you know, the consultation was 90% talking about chemotherapy but nevertheless in their mind and and one of them actually went to the onwards one, in fact my only case story to the onwards one was someone who complaining that I hadn't given chemo to a palliative patient where it was offered but the patient actually declined but the relatives then later said, you know, all they remembered was me talking about a lifestyle uh, and that was when actually, I was very pleased, um, said, no, it was entirely appropriate to talk about lifestyle. So that's a nice test
2: if you ever get a complaint that you're not actually making yourself vulnerable. Um, you know, disregard is pretty mainstream, but you should be
4: talking about these things.
0: That's really fascinating that you discuss and lifestyle with a palliative patient. I've actually not done my palliative medicine rotation yet, as I'm doing it my final year next year. So it'd just be interesting to hear from you how that conversation happens uh, when someone's towards the end of life and you talk about diet and lifestyle, because um, I know like certain family members of mine would just kind of be like, well, I'm at the end now, what's the point? So how do you go about that conversation and what are the benefits that you see by someone right at the end of their life making those changes? Yeah, I mean the term palliative, as you know, um, is a very
4: broad term. I mean you're technically palliative if, you have, if you're not on a curative pathway, but we've got drugs in oncology now who could keep people alive and well for up to 10 years, so it isn't necessarily at the end of their life, um, and you might have a, a, a cross-treated chemotherapy or biological agents which might again be very useful for that patient for some time. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm not actually talking about someone who's on their deathbed. Sure, okay. Mm-hmm. So if you speak to a motivated palliative care consultant helping with nausea,
0: fatigue, um, you know, bed sores, uh, to get moving and to do some interventions, it, 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 there's, there is no sort of part of medicine where it's not appropriate, even at that late stage, actually. And that's fantastic to hear. I definitely agree. It should be integrated into every specialty. And so moving on, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how certain cancers can be associated with dietary and nutritional factors compared to others. So chronic inflammation has been theorised to play a role in the development of carcinogenesis. And the media sometimes plays a role in villainising certain foods like red meat and sugar, making the field of nutrition and cancer partic- particularly difficult for patients to navigate. So I was just wondering if, first things first, you can just explain the role that diet inflammation in the carcinogenesis of something like colorectal cancer in, um, in particular has, and why it's so relevant. Um,
4: well, that's, that's a big question.
0: Yeah. Um, you're all afternoon on that. But, you know, you have to split it up into foods which are healthy and foods which are unhealthy. So if you mm-hmm. start with the unhealthy foods, they'd be things uh, mainly within meat, that's a big
4: culprit. Not necessarily the meat itself, but how it's cooked. The nitrous amines are then converted into carcinogens in your stomach. Uh, The aromatic hydrocarbons, these are absorbed into your bloodstream and they have direct DNA modifying effects. So they split to the arrangements of your genes and that's the first start of the cancer process. Um, and then there's you know, estrogenic carcinogens you get in um, plastics and uh, pollution, etc. And some of these can filter into the food chain. Um, but on the good side, of course, we have um, some vitamins uh, and uh, foods called, which are rich in polyphenols and phytochemicals, which give food its color, its taste and its smell. And they generally protect you. Uh, they can be deliberate antidotes, direct antidotes to carcinogens. In other words, you could, if you had, say, a burnt sausage and you had it with lots of herbs and spices and salads, instead of those um, nitrates being converted into nitrosamines, they can be converted to nitric oxide, which is a good thing. So it's all to do with a combination mm. of fruits. And these polyphenols,
2: they, uh, as well as being direct antidotes to carcinogens, They can feed the healthy um, bacteria in your gut. So they're butyrate forming polyphenols, and the good bacteria enhance gut integrity. Whereas
4: something like processed sugar feeds the bad bacteria, and they overgrow, and then you get a leaky gut syndrome. And if you get a leaky gut, you get toxins going into your bloodstream. The immune system then issues a immune reaction against them and you get an inappropriate raised inflammatory response.
0: that it's just more about balance than villainising any food group (laughs)
3: <laughs> and, and i think that with
1: not just with individual meals but like helping people to think about how much fruit and veg they're actually eating so for me i try never to have a a, a carbohydrate sugar breakfast you know, i much wanted to have eggs with vegetables So giving people ideas of different things they could eat or making some sort of protein pancakes with vegetables and things like that so they're actually very slowly away and they're naturally including fruit and vegetables and all these potent phytochemicals in their diet um, it's not about just cutting things out, it's about adding, adding, in. Things, adding things in. Because if you teach people to add things in, naturally there's less space for the, maybe some of the unhealthier foods. So if they're focusing more on the on the foods that they want to add in first, then there's less space for the unhealthy foods.
0: Absolutely, and I feel like adding in things also creates a more positive psychological approach because it's not as much as restri- as about restriction. So I wanted to ask all of you, how do you deal with a patient on the other end of the spectrum who becomes too over-involved in their diet that actually leads to high levels of stress, which, as we know, also contributes to chronic inflammation? So uh, patients who are very obsessed with the minutiae of their nutrients and what they're taking in and what they could control. So kind of looking at more of an orthorexic type picture. How do you deal with that kind of patient in guiding them on this?
4: Who do you want to start?
0: Whoever wants to go. Uh, well, I um, I mean, I do get patients referred to me. I try not to uh, get too many, especially from outside the area. Who, who, as you say,
4: are totally obsessed with, with what they're doing. Um, and and usually that obsession almost leads them declining medical treatments as well. So it sort of goes hand in hand and hand that group. Um, and as you say, you know, if you if you're scared of fruit. Food, you're anxious. That that is a negative health attribute, and that can um, cause problems as well. It can reduce gut health and increase inflammation. Um, I, it's it's hard. I mean, I, I I often just say to people when they come to me is you know they're on about fifty different supplements. They're they you know they picking up. One uh, person was going through berries with with a tweezers, making sure there was no possible any fungus on each berry. It was taking him like three hours to have a bowl of fruit. Um, You've just got to try to sit down and you've got to see the wood for the trees. You know, most of the benefit of lifestyle is the 95% obvious things, cutting out sugar, cutting out burnt carcinogenic foods, uh, eating more fruit and veg, you're going to get 90% of the benefit. That extra 10% by being really pernickety, you're going into uncharted territory anyway, on the evidence, uh, and and that's the bit which causes the stress. And I'm trying to get people to, to do that. But you do have people who are just you know absolutely obsessed by it, and I don't know uh, I don't know the answer to that. What what do the others think?
1: I often, if they're really that obsessed and they're not listening to kind of the evidence and the science, I often do refer those people to a psychologist because they do need it's actually a mental health problem rather than. Yeah we're doing with our food and they may have had other um behavioral patterns or addictions or um, obsessive compulsive disorders which has made them think in that way and as you said rightly that you know that will increase their cortisol levels and inflammation so i do think that you know when i'm not an expert in mental health in that way i know that eating a mediterranean diet has been shown to support mental health but if they don't if they're not ready for that conversation then they need help with why they're actually thinking, and why is that thinking get brought to that place and what's underneath that and how they can find coping mechanisms to uh, work with what's going on with their, um, their mental health.
4: I'm glad you said that because I was, I believe that people who sort of don't take tamoxifen when they've got a fungating breast cancer, which is ER positive, causing cord compression, yet they're pulling out berries and checking for fungus that has to be a mental problem, but you're always scared to label someone as that. So I'm really glad to hear you, you think the same thing. And uh, yeah, I think psychiatric referral is probably, if you can get one, I mean, we we, we have trouble with psychiatric services where, where we work. But.
1: And I often just refer them to, I mean, a, a private, you know, psychotherapist or something, but it is hard. Again, as you say, with NHS, it's very hard to, People well, that profit because they're oversubscribed. so But it is a mental health problem because they're
3: not able to see the wood from the trees, quite literally. <laughs> no, that's good. I also think there's quite a lot of people who's, who sit alone, frightened at their desk doing the desk research and have come to that conclusion for themselves and what I find is what quite interesting when people come say to the National Centre where we're working or they meet us in groups and we talk about the evidence and actually can unpick some of that and actually you know concentrate on what the real evidence says I feel there's you can almost see quite a relief sometimes Mm. on people's faces and I get lots of people saying
2: (laughs) excuse me um I'm so grateful for permission
3: to eat normal foods, and I would talk to them about, for example, Professor Spex's work on the microbiome, where you know at least 30 different foods, farm foods a week are going to be supported of that, and if we, again, we start talking in the role of all these benefits, the phytochemicals, all of that kind of thing, it's also sometimes you can switch a mindset, so I think you're right, so there are a certain proportion of people who are just myopic in their view and will only want to do this. And that probably needs more psychological support. But I think there's also another group, and I have had instances for for quite well-known nutritional therapists tell people really, really rigid rules. You know, someone was told, no, you can't have a roast potato with your Christmas dinner because of the carbohydrate and the insulin, and it's like, really? And this this is quite a well-known nutritional therapist working in the cancer field. And that person listened to that, that person, went away, and then apparently burst into tears. And just thought, you know, my life is not worth living. And you hear that kind of thing, story, quite a lot. And I, it's, it's opened my eyes to the nutritional therapy world and some of the advice is given with good intentions mm-hmm. based on just looking at the evidence and not the person mm-hmm. and not trying to understand that, you know, we have all have to live our lives. And so I think we have to be really careful as practitioners to make sure we keep, you know, we keep that whole person perspective and we're not just trying to do what the last study said. Mm-hmm. Um, like that. Everyone's
1: absolutely individual, so the, the rules that might work for that nutritional therapist may not work for that person because our genetics are so different, and we you know, our lifestyle don't switching genes on and off the whole time. So to have that kind of rigid rules also means it's going to push people towards orthorexia, and we know that that is a me- massive mental health issue. So I I find it very scary that. Um, there are nutritional therapists out there, and I think that's part of the lack of regulation. Again, with registered nutritionists are, and nutritional therapists are two different things, so we have to also remember that too. Absolutely, uh, it it's, it is a true. I mean, it's, it's, you're talking about enormous spectrum, and I, you know, as you said, I've had nutritionists which I've had concerns with, but I've also had many concerns with you
4: know regular NHS dietitians who who hand you a carton. Of of food and say, you know, this is all you need, you know, and literally it's, and uh, some, yeah, so you need to be in the middle somewhere in the common sense. Mm.
0: Absolutely. I think you've all really highlighted the importance of a shared partnership in this with all of you describing how, you know, that certain patient group that is very um, conscious about each individual nutrients and the asking for permission, it's so useful to have that clinician in front of them who is able to give credible, regulated advice to take the weight off their shoulders of making decisions and just say it's okay to follow this dietary pattern and um, it's okay to have this, that and the other. There is such a thing as balance. And so, um, Nikki, you spoke about harmful advice that you've heard from um, other professionals. Uh, What all of you, what other harmful advice have you heard? And is there a way of calling it out? Is there a way of actually trying to stop it from happening and um, you know perpetuating forward? good,
3: good, for Yeah. Um, I, I think I would say, from the practitioners, I haven't seen much. I was, I was actually called harmful in terms of the um, dangerous advice. Mm-hmm. I think it's. And harmful in in terms of the psychological impact of telling people you can't do this, you can't do that. The fear and anxiety that's caused. I think I see a lot more of that. A lot of it's well-intentioned advice, rather than necessarily particularly harmful. As in, you know, very very restricted diets, or or or. I mean, I found a book when I was looking that was called the Cigar and Red Wine Diet. Cancer. So there is some very dodgy stuff out there, but I think, in terms of that, I wasn't probably a decent practitioner doing that. I think it is more about that putting fear and anxiety into people mm-hmm. at a time when they have so much stress in their lives already that we should be alleviating that and not adding to it. So, from my perspective, I think it's more that kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I think the problem is that
1: when people use so much social media and internet, and there are some people. Who've had cancer and now feel they can tell people what to do. And there's a lot of bloggers who've made a lot of, you know, money and a massive businesses. So if you think about the Australian Belle Gibson who did it who said she'd had cancer and said she cured herself with a you know vegan diet, but actually never had cancer. And there's a lot of those kind of people mm. who are absolutely terrifying. And I think that, you know, even yesterday I was online on social media and there was somebody, oh, they were looking for jobs in medicine. In fact, Ali you sent me that where mm. somebody um they want medics to give IV drips, And you know, again, if we've got people who are trying to make money from dubious schemes and dubious things, then, then this is where the problem is. So, how do we regulate that as a country mm-hmm. and how do we regulate that internationally? And again, I think as Professor Thomas was saying, that until nutritionists and dietitians, everyone's kind of works together with this kind of balance and um, has common sense, it's going to be we are going to have charlatans who want to make money
4: mm-hmm. from people, unfortunately. Um. Yeah, on my side, um, you know, the vast majority of advice
2: is not because you're telling them too much, it's because you're telling them too little. I mean, when I, you know, I don't want to um,
4: criticise my colleagues, but sometimes I see their patients and they say, no, 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 but my doctor told me not to exercise during my chemotherapy or, you know, my, uh, you know, I was told, like, I'm was not allowed to go swimming, I mean, COVID, pre-COVID uh, aside, you know, when someone really enjoyed him, what's the evidence for not swimming during Treatments, you know. Um, so I get a lot of that um, on the on the side. You were talking about the. I do get upset when people are, you know, in talks. You say, well, I've gone for high dose vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C, and then I say, well, you know, there's, you know, there's not a lot of evidence of harm, but there's certainly no evidence of good. And they say, oh no, but the guy had a Nobel Prize, and you say, well, he sort of had a Nobel Prize twenty five years later for another bit of research. And there wasn't, a, and when there was a study of IV vitamin C uh, or not, or against placebo, the there was no, uh, sorry, oral vitamin C against placebo, there was no benefit. And then they
2: said, ah, oh, but they haven't tested intravenous vitamin C. So, well, that means that they haven't. So, therefore, there's no benefit. And you can argue till you're blue in the
4: exactly. face that uh, there are practitioners who are making a, you know, a, a, quite a bit of money on fake on practices like that with no benefit behind them. And they should be stopped, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I mean, actually putting a needle into someone's veins and pumping.
0: talking to um dr rari robertson on a gut health podcast i did the other week and he was saying how from the legislation with food policy you're not allowed to call a food probiotic that's on the supermarket shelves but there's no harm in you saying gut friendly yogurt gut friendly this so that all these ways that you know the advertisement industry work when it comes to marketing food to kind of put into someone's subconscious oh if i take this it's good for me and i'll have this health benefit from it yeah, they, you are. I mean, the, F, the, the European Food Standards Agency do allow you to say some things with mm. some products, which, which is fine. But it's more that they can say they can get a probiotic and add vitamin C or add anything they want to it and say it's an improved version
4: of one which might even have been tested. Uh, and there's no one. Unless uh, I suppose individuals report them but even then it, uh, it just goes on and it does confuse people and people get angry and take the
0: wrong things. Absolutely and that's the last thing you want you want to reduce the confusion to help people at this stressful time. So Nikki and Torrell from your point of view and um, Dr Thomas are there any absolute no's when it comes to diet or what would you say to that?
1: I don't really think I mean, absolute no's i I just don't really see that because I think again it's everyone has to work with their diet and balance but I think it's about reducing it's about replacing it's about changing but if you just tell people no you can't eat that then I think I mean obviously smoking's a slightly different conversation but um, with food I don't I personally don't think there's such a thing as no it's about changing portion size changing the frequency of you eat things changing how you eat things so one of the funny conversations I had with my nephew is only five we were talking about meat and he said, maybe you could sous vide the meat, which is like cooking it at a really slow temperature, a low temperature in a bag of water. And I found that quite funny because we were talking about obviously, yeah, charred grilled meat. So think about how you cook things, you know, differently. Think about how you do things slightly differently. I don't think there's a complete no for not eating
3: anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, think it's, um, I think it's quite dangerous to start saying no to things. I think for me it's about informed choice. And so I think our role should be about giving people information so that they can then decide how they use that information. So, you know, you could say no in a way. Some of the carcinogenic, so why would we, we wouldn't be encouraging someone to be eating burnt food every day, drinking excess alcohol, things that we know are carcinogenic. But even that, you know, so if you took the WCRS regulations for the, their you know, evidence Strictly, we would say I mean ethanol is a carcinogen at one drop so you could literally say well I should never touch a drop of alcohol again but if you give people the information and again it's part of that overall picture and then we look at nice red wine with its polyphenols we might then say well okay now how do we interpret that in the in the sense of someone's real life mm-hmm. so I think it for me it's about giving the information allowing people to make those sensible choices um, Yeah, um, it's my son's 22nd birthday on Sunday, and he's having a social distance small gathering barbecue. So, you know, obviously, if he goes to Iceland and gets, you know, 22 piece sausages and fries them to a
4: crisp and drowns it with a can of special brew, that's all negative. So I I quote the Maryland data, which goes if you marinate food, uh, meat, Uh, in herbs and spices, eat it with some salad, so I've I've gone out and gone to a a Sicilian delicatessen and bought some sun-dried tomatoes, some olives, artichokes, so they can have those as snacks, and i said, look, and if you do get them meat, try to get some venison sausages, which are probably a better quality meat, and and try not to crisp them, so you could, you know, it's still going to be slightly, probably unhealthy, but you can take the edge off it, quite considerably, I think,
0: actually. Absolutely. And I love that anecdote. <laughs> happy, happy 22nd to your son. <laughs> and um, so just to kind of understand what it's like in a consultation, we've talked about all the issues when it does um, crop up, when it comes to advising people with too much restriction in mind and everything like that. So how do you go ab- about advising and helping your po- your patients choose the right dietary practice for them? What kind of questions are you asking them? What details of their lives are you looking for?
3: I always like starting with what people like to eat, because when you start asking what people like, and you know, nobody, there's very few people who don't like a strawberry. Um, and you know, you, you'll dig underneath what vegetables they like, what fruits they like, and if you start to talk about things they like and meals that they like, and then help them to start thinking, okay, how could we make that meal slightly more healthy and nutritious and balanced? Then I find that that really talks to people. If you start basically saying, throw everything the way you know, and you've got to eat like this, you're not gonna bring anyone with you at all. So starting from where someone is at, with what they like, and then talking to them about, you know, I, I say, I have a kind of few mantras that I use, things like plus one, so with every meal that you have, just add one more healthy thing. Then that's three times a day, that's 21 a week. And you can talk to people about how these things soon add up in terms of their overall impact um and so i think there's lots of those things and i guess it's getting to know someone again a little bit as well and and seeing what you know how they respond to things but i think you're always starting from where someone is at You'll ne- you won't go too far on
0: absolutely um, uh, yeah i mean as i say, i don't really have a lot of time and that's why i, I often refer people to, to penny brown actually
4: if, if they want more advice so they do the uh, talking for me but um I, I try to go for this, it, it, most of my patients, are not the ones you talked about were paranoid about food, most of my patients get up and, and have, you know, sugar puffs for breakfast with a bacon sandwich, you know, and then they, half an hour later, they're chomping something else throughout the whole morning. So I try to say, well, let's start the day, and I, and I try to say, no sugar for breakfast, and I try, I, I'm a very keen advocate of not snacking between meals, so I'll say try to, Try to finish your breakfast and don't have anything till sort of 2 o'clock. Or even go for a run if you can before before your lunch, so you extend that period of fasting. Um, and and you know, just try to concentrate on that as not stack, uh, snacking between meals. And it, it's
0: it's you know, it, it's hard, but actually most people do appreciate it, and, and that's the one thing which helps them lose weight and, and rest the stomach. You know, rest the stomach acids usually come back feeling um better and once you start getting to feel better then then it's a chain reaction but I usually start with that and then move on from there and then trying to introduce you know quinoa and buckwheat and all these foods they probably may not have been familiar with and Dr Thomas sorry before we hear from Toril why is it that um it's so important not to start the day off um, with breakfast, um, which contains high, high sugar, high, high amounts of sugar. Well, the, there's some data um, from a number of studies which show that if you extend the overnight fast to about thirteen hours, you are um, it's associated with lower insulin-like growth factor, lower insulin levels, reduced inflammation, and in one randomized study um, involving people with breast cancer, it, it was associated with a lower risk.
4: Of, of breast cancer relaxed. so there's lots of evidence for that. And my view, and looking, speaking to uh, endocrinologists, is when you then have sugar on an empty stomach, it's absorbed so much quicker. So you, you know, within ten minutes, you've got that that insulin peak, um, and then you know all the things we know which is dangerous associated with that. But then within an hour, you're hungry again because your insulin levels are still riding quite high, and the sugar and the food's been. Absorbed, and then you start getting really hungry and fatigue and that's what prompts them to then snack at 11 or snack at mm. 10, and snack at 12 whereas if you have a slow release of carbohydrates start to the day you don't have that desire to, to then snack two hours later so it's a, it's a little thing and it's easily achievable But you know, the consumers are against us. You go into the supermarket and try to buy Mm a cereal without sugar in, they virtually don't exist. You have to go and order it from Scandinavia, which I'm currently doing for my special Rice Krispies without sugar. Um, So, you know, it is tricky for people.
0: And Toro?
1: So, similar both to Nikki and Hosamus, I, you know, just trying to see where they're at also i take a seven day diary i mean people are coming to me with motivation because they're paying me so a lot of the time and obviously when i give free books it's a different conversation but like breakfast is an important part of the day and i do encourage people again like to start have increase that fasting time and then start off with a protein vegetable fruit you know breakfast as opposed to starting with sugar um but it's also about finding out their cultural preferences too because different cultures eat different things so when I'm working with Indian people, they're used to eating, especially if they're vegetarian. They are going to be eating a lot of different fruits and vegetables, but they're going to have a lot more carbs. And maybe if they're sedentary, they don't need those as much. So try to we you know wean them off into eating more vegetables and more fruits, and maybe eating more whole grain versions and things like that. And with you know with black African or African Caribbean. Like, they again they like rice and beans and different things so they just change the portion sizes rather than stopping them from eating and then once you introduce more things in then you can start to think about other conversations about where you might want to take their diet but it has to be work with their taste buds otherwise they're never going to eat it they might enjoy it they're never going to eat it
0: absolutely and Tori you, you touch upon such an important point on how crucial it is that clinicians nutritionists you name it aren't giving dietary and lifestyle advice in a socio-cultural vacuum and so um, Nikki and um, Dr Thomas how do you feel about this how do you feel it's possible to not give blanket advice that is just dependent on western diet preferences how do you um, give diet that is suitable for people from different um, ethnic cultural backgrounds? So with, with the way
3: that we do, what we tend to do, and in our introductory talk, we, I have a big big plate which is very visual um, and very colourful. And what I tend to do is talk through that, and then I will give examples of different types of meal where you would use this. And on, on obviously, it was was saying so you might look at the vegetable thing and think actually, well, I would be putting this kind of vegetable, a yam, instead of a sweet potato, and, and various bits on a plate. But, uh, but also, for us at the centre of our plate, we have herbs and spices, and that tends to take you straight into lots of other cultures. Mm. I've coined, I don't know if i coined it, but I've Mediterranean diet. Because it's for me, blending the best of the most. The best of the and so your lovely spices, your green teas, that kind of thing, with your colourful vegetables, your nuts and seeds, your, and the whole grains, those two together. And then that, and that's quite interesting for people, but I would always go through examples of, and I would use a curry as an example. I would use a, a, all sorts of different examples, take those principles and then create a dish with it. And I think it's just, it's just giving people, helping their imagination as to how they could do things differently. So, I, you know, it's kind, it's kind of quite fun sometimes. And we definitely, I try to have a range of cookbooks. So we have, I have different recipe books that I show to people and, you know, I try different things. Also, we're trying to eat cross-culturally as well and not to just stick to, you know, a bland so-called British diet. You know, most, a lot of the recipes we're talking about will be Asian influenced. be, but it's I think It's quite exciting. Once you free people up from thinking, have broccoli or courgette or this, then then it opens up. You know, opens up lots of things for them. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have usually any problems with people from different uh, international cultures because um, you know China, uh, um, India, etc. They they usually do use more polyphenol-rich foods. It's it's the sort of hardcore. British, if you, if, if you want to use the white British from, you know, who, who where I grew up, you know, boiling broccoli, it was a four-hour
0: job, you know, trying to change the cooking practices um, to blanching vegetables and using more herbs and spices. So it's usually, I bring, you know, Asian culture into a British thing, like explaining what kimchi is, explaining, you know, uh, what kefir is, uh, explaining how you can use, bacterial rich foods and fermented foods into a british diet i think most that's where most of the hurdles are sure and dr thomas have you found that you've had any sort of skepticism over the years from your other colleagues in the oncology field when you're talking to patients around nutrition and lifestyle uh,
4: yeah in the early days It was a bit of a laughing point, really. You know, whenever I remember doing a study looking at uh, 500 patients who were having radiotherapy and then we sort of correlated how much exercise they did with the late effects such as bowel damage, uh, erectile dysfunction, et cetera. And there was a fairly strong correlation, in fact.
2: Uh, and when I presented that to my colleagues, there was all sniggering in the room,
4: oh, you know, we can't do exercise, or you know, and they were sort of laughing at the fact that they were and proud of the fact they didn't exercise. Uh, but that was six years ago. And actually, that went on to win the college prize. So I was very pleased about that because I could dangle my medal in front of them and say, look, you know, people are taking this seriously. And also, then when you go to someone like ASCO, the world's largest cancer conference, which actually didn't exist this year, but, um, you know, the, op- the president stood up a year before last and said, you know, we've got, we're, we're a responsible organization. We need to take survivorship, lifestyle very seriously put it into his top four uh, priorities along with biologicals and genetics and things um so it, it needs to come from people like that and then now i noticed i last time i went to annembrokes i couldn't see any the doctors not wearing track suits or cycling to work okay. uh, or embracing it so it, it, there's been a rapid change as far as i can see over the last five years and i think it's going to continue to change so i think mm. it's just a probably we just started a bit early, we were just, you know, a
0: bit avant-garde, but... Uh, Trailblazers, uh, I love it. And told do you want to just talk about your experiences coming from um, the medical school system into the nutritional world and your frustrations at the time from the sceptics and the lack of education within your training? So,
1: you know, I was at UCL and on course, obviously, to you know, in my head, when I decided when I was 16, I would be an oncologist, obviously knew nothing. But, you know, when I decided to leave, because no one was taking... When my mum had breast cancer no one was really taking nutrition and lifestyle seriously and no one seemed to know anything about this it was just me digging things up but, you know probably quite an obscure things I suddenly thought well hang on a second we know that cancer's a growing disease more and more people are getting it at that time it's probably one in four now it's almost one in two people so why are we not doing anything that is one aspect of life that we can all change we can be responsible for diet and lifestyle so why is no one talking about this so People laughed at me, and I left, and I worked in research, and then I went into that master's in nutritional medicine, and yeah, you know, for a long time. I would say you're right. Yeah, you know, the, the change came only five or six years ago. Until then, no one took me seriously, and I bumped into someone recently who I went to medical school with, and she said, "Oh, we, we all laughed at you, and now you're actually you're the one who knew who understood it, and actually you're probably making more difference to people than all of us." So I think it's been really interesting. And then from a personal perspective. I, I was just doing the masters in nutritional medicine when I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I, admittedly, at very early stages, you know, a mixture of DCIS and stage one. But I do think the fact that I was eating all the right things, I was training for triathlon all of that stuff helped me to bounce back, and being young, of course, too, helped me to bounce back more quickly, and, and to recover quickly, and when I talked about that, people used to laugh about it, I'm like, how can that help me to recover, I'm like, well, my body had everything it needed, it had the resilience, it had the immune system working well, to recover and heal from, you know, mastectomy me and everything else, so mm-hmm. I think it's interesting to, that now people are really taking it seriously, and when I was talking about this back in 2006, yeah, no one No one could understand what I was doing. They're like, why are you doing a transplant in the middle of your treatment? I'm like, well, because I want to. So, you know, those sorts of things. The world's
2: changed
0: now. Thank you so much for sharing your very personal story to our listeners. I think it's so invaluable to hear just the sheer difference that diet and lifestyle modifications made for your journey at such a difficult time um, in an illness journey. And to hear how it just helped your resilience beyond belief and allowed your body to bounce back and um i think it's really important that it actually is ingrained so into the education system so that it's not just individual thought leaders leading the way in this kind of change system so i wanted to ask all of you do you think that medical students should be taught more around nutrition and lifestyle medicine bit of a loaded question but you know Um, that's why we're on the podcast (laughs) can i just um thing which is probably relevant to the medical students. Um, oncologists as you know now are using probably 60% of the drugs used for biologicals rather than chemotherapy. Thomas we'd love to get you involved we've got a Cambridge Nutri-Tank branch so we'd love to get you involved in doing a talk for them. Okay yeah. Be brilliant and then hopefully it'll become mainstream but it's very fascinating the point you made about pharmaceuticals and the interaction with nutrients because I think what people think in um, just the general public and just general medicine that conventional medicine and pharmaceuticals are at one end of the end of the spectrum and then diet and lifestyles at the other end but really it's all about that holistic approach and like you say them working in harmony together synergistically to better the patient's health and I think we've just opposed them so much over the years that it's been I'm a naturopath or I'm into my drugs and we need to really have that balance when it comes to treatment so that people are getting the best approach. Yeah I
4: mean the future is going to be a prehabilitation programme so they go off to Penny Brown they spend a the month sorting their life out, if that's possible to do in a month, but you know what I mean? And then they start the treatments and they're more likely to re- respond and get less side effects. But you have to take it as a proper, serious program and not just playing around.
1: And Macmillan have actually put together a prehabilitation program yeah. now as well. And I think, going back to the medical school question, absolutely yes. And I also think that, rather than teaching people different systems, if we worked in a more integrative, holistic way, then we would naturally put together the fact that if you improve your gut health, it will work better with some pharmaceuticals, and we'll also understand that how our you know, diet and lifestyle makes epigenetic changes. So I think that's what maybe there needs to be an overhaul of the whole medical kind of system of teaching and also continuing how we see
3: patients as well. I, I would agree. I mean, the evidence is so strong now that you can't, you know, it's inexcusable really not to have that's part of the curriculum and i think dr rupee's been doing some great work on that and as you know ali we have medical students come to penny brown most years and it's just wonderful to see them and to see them come in at the beginning of the month and and the questions that they ask and then see them at the end of the month when they've had the exposures to all the things that we do the patients that we're working with it's there it's really amazing. And I think if everybody can have an experience like that, we would have a very different medical system um, than we, we have now. Um, so I think it's very exciting, but I, I see the younger generation of medical students having
0: being much more open to this mm-hmm. and much more open to the lifestyle approaches, which is really, I think, really exciting and encouraging. And I also think the reason why, like myself and uh, my medical student colleagues, are so interested in this is because we're part of the generation that's really trying to propel the need for self care and get rid of the mantra of you only sleep when you're dead. And we really want to be able to practice without the harms of burnout coming our way, which has been such an issue for older generations of ourselves. So it's really becoming that kind of practice what you preach kind of situation because we've realized that. In order to have more productivity, have better mental health, you know, you really have to encompass all these nutrition and lifestyle, um, kind of patterns to have an overall picture of health. So I think that's what's also starting to happen as well. It's coming on to people's radar more because they can see it working for themselves. And as we all know, if you see it working for yourself, you're more likely to want to talk about it with others. Um,
4: I don't know how much time you've got. We quite like a study which we did in the chemotherapy unit in, in Bedford, where I managed to ban um, cakes and sweets from the, from the work surfaces of the chemo sweets, because as people come into the unit, all they see is cakes and sweets. I mean, we, we replaced that with fruit and nuts for a four-month period. I have to say the day after four months went, it went straight back to sweets again, which is a bit disappointing. But during that four months, we asked patients what you thought of that, you know, leading by example, what you just said. And it unanimously said yeah that's exactly which annoys us you're telling us to stop eating cakes and sweets and all i see is you eating cakes and sweets so it's a it's a good, it's a good way to educate patients and also we formally measured happiness scores which went up by 12 percent, which is a big intervention absenteeism went down and weight dropped only only a little at you but it was only a four month intervention by an average
2: of uh, two and a half kilograms yeah. um now we have a big problem with weight issues among staff in the NHS, which leads to taking time off work and extra cost for everyone. So that intervention alone would save a fortune
0: and give the right message. Mm-hmm. And to ask all of you, starting off with um, Dr. Thomas, I remember, I don't remember when it came out with probably two years ago. There was a bit of controversy when it was either WHO or some other health organisation brought out the fact that obesity was one of the leading riskers for all types of cancer and then it kind of turned into an argument a bit about you know individual blame and it wasn't really um, kind of the language wasn't really that appropriate i remember that that was used so how do you go about having that conversation with a patient that is presented to you who is um who does have a high bmi and um, how do you actually chat about weight in a kind of sensitive manner, but highlighting that it does put them at greater risk? And how do we kind of allow our public health campaigns to encompass this sensitivity that doesn't kind of reflect um, individual blame?
4: Um, you're right, I find it very difficult to talk to, with patients who are very overweight uh, because it's a sort of psychological issue there as well. Um, I tried to talk, you know, not around the obvious, you need to eat less and um, exercise more, uh, but try to sort of talk about other factors like, you know, it's, it's good to overnight fast or it's good not to snack between meals or it's good to reduce the sugar. Without not actually addressing the weight, obviously, but you've got to be careful because I, I've just started a COVID nutritional intervention study and uh, it's looking at gut health and lifestyle to reduce the severity of the illness now. There was someone on telly recently who said, oh, there's a, there's a lot of lifestyle elements for the people who get COVID and they were completely shot down in flames, you know, how dare you even suggest that, even though it is well known that if you are overweight or have diabetes or or uh, have a uh, diet which is going to contribute to poor gut health, you're more likely to catch it and get severe symptoms. So.
0: Mickey, do you have any tips, especially for medical students and junior doctors who are listening to this? How do you, um, you know, broach the subject of weight, especially when it's in their best interest with a chronic disease? muddy waters because you obviously don't want to make that person sat in front of you blame themselves for developing such an awful disease but at the same time you want to empower them to make the changes so it must require great skill and a lot of compassion like you say.
3: And cancer is multifactorial isn't it? Mm. I mean you know there's not one thing is likely to have cancer so I think explaining all those different factors but the fact that this is one thing that we have control over, um, and we can do something about, and that by like, trying to make it into more of a positive project, self-care projects, as you say, that we can that
0: we can help take forward. Absolutely, and so going back to individual cancers and um, their risks for, um, and diet being risk factor for some of them. Um, Dr. Thomas, could you just tell us a little bit about colorectal cancer and the association of the westernized diet increasing the risk of developing it?
4: Um, yeah, and people often ask, you know, are the lifestyle measures you're
2: advocating, are they very cancer specific? Well, like, most of the time they're not cancer specific, mm. not even disease specific. So if you talk about the
4: risk of diabetes or heart disease or strokes, or, or cancer, they're pretty much the same. In fact, a little bit of a plug here my next book coming out in September, How to Live, is actually um, about all diseases. It's about, in fact, the 90% degenerative diseases, but I feel empowered to talk about those because they, they're almost identical to cancer and identical to different cancer types. I suppose talking about phytoestrogens and um, estrogenic pollution is more uh, relevant to sort of hormone sensitive cancers. you know not necessarily so um you know if you talk about smoking for example people think it will reduce the risk of lung and throat cancer but actually smoke smoking is a very high risk factor for lymphoma or bowel cancer so uh, you know there isn't um, i think you know all the things we talk about apply for all cancers Mm -hmm. i forget in particular of course there is the um you know the gut health that's been linked to bowel cancer dental caries uh, 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 there's a lot of evidence that if you have uh, poor dental hygiene, you you, you swallow the, the pathogenic bacteria, which can then integrate with your gut um, bacteria have become carcinogenic. Uh, and of course, the um, the bird meat aromatic hydrocarbons are particularly relevant to esophagus, pancreas, um, and stomach and bowel. And I suppose sugar and pancreatic cancer is very much linked, so there's a few little sort of uh, Mm. uh, nuances between one or the other, but I I think it's sort of, you know, I don't think it's basically helpful to start streamlining, like, okay, you've got pancreatic cancer, therefore you're particularly sensitive to sugar,
0: for example. Sure, and what about that study you did with prostate cancer, and looking at the effect of um, polyphenol-rich whole food supplementation on PSA progression, could you elaborate on that? Uh, well, when we started that study, we worked with the NCRN and we wanted uh, to, to, to address people who,
2: uh, you know, about 70% of patients are, are admitted to taking supplements. Most of them probably don't do any good. Some actually could do
4: harm, such as vitamin A and vitamin E and some direct antioxidants. So we sort of formulated that as a sort of a general sort of healthy supplement and then then look for a disease to, to test it in. So we didn't specifically design it for prostate uh, and prostate is the obvious disease because more and more men, I would say 60% of my men are on active surveillance now, where we watch them very, very carefully and only treat the ones who are showing
2: progression on MRI or PSA. Mm -hmm. And that's the group where you can intervene with a dietary supplement or dietary intervention. And that did show a very significant reduction in the PSA progression, uh, which is very pleasing. We followed that with another study looking at MRI changes just to confirm it, um, but yes, would, uh, I'd love to do something like that for other cancers, but mm. they're so difficult to do in other groups. You couldn't say someone with a breast cancer, you know, don't go off and have your lumpectomy and take a food supplement instead, I mean, it would be inappropriate. Uh, you would be able to look at people who had cancers and they've got intermission to see if it would affect the relapse rate. But again, those are very long studies.
4: We did try to explore a cancer preventative element, uh, but again, Large studies like the SELECT study need 10,000 people followed for six years. I mean, they cost millions and millions of pounds. The only way we we recently published this year remotely in ASCO, we looked at a very large database with 155,000 people and we asked them questionnaires whether they ate more of those foods or whether they ate more uh, broccoli or drank more tea. Did they subsequently have a lower risk of cancer? And the answer was yes. So we know that they could be a cancer preventative element, but you can't directly link that supplement with a cancer prevention, but it does give you the encouragement that those foods are likely to reduce your risk of cancer as well as if you've got it, slow the
2: progression.
0: So you've discussed using supplements as a way of testing uh, whether nutrients are beneficial for um, altering progression of certain cancers. What are some of the benefits and some of the drawbacks of concentrating the nutrients into a supplement and giving them to patients versus the whole food? Because from what I've understood, and please correct me if I'm wrong, for research um, purposes, it seems, more, um, it seems more feasible to do it with a supplement for compliance and ease and convenience. But how, how do you think this translates into the real world and into people buying their food in the supermarket and just daily life? the the whole food approach versus the supplement approach and how do you translate the evidence from the amount of nutrients that you've concentrated into that supplement into a whole food dietary approach? well yeah so when we designed the study, we very much looked
2: at whole foods concentrated rather than food extracts so definitely steered away from individual chemicals like vitamin a or vitamin b or like
4: b. we also steered away from extracts So most supplements are extracts so they might be a hundred times more Like you can have pomegranate extra, it might be 100 times more the concentration of pomegranate so the pomi tea supplement was just using whole food supplements whole foods just freeze dried so it uh, and uh, it's, it's you can also get people to have it for breakfast and lunch so you're taking it at times you wouldn't normally have turmeric for example which is one of the ingredients so you are better able to then say it wasn't far off you know you what you could put in your diet So you could say to them, the results were significant, highly significant. So how you put that to a patient is, these foods clearly have an effect on your cancer. It's up to them to then, if they want to then change their diet, to include those foods in the diet. But I suppose if if it's well made, and it has a a particular one, it's now made in Switzerland by a drug company, you make sure it's got no pesticides, herbicides, you have the choice to take it as well. So, um, you know, that, but that's up to them. You know, we never say take a supplement instead of a diet, but it gives you a choice. And, I, you know, I take it because it's also good for joint pains as you go exercising and things. So. And I do a lot of work with athletes now who take extra turmeric and extra uh, foods like that, which are in pomi
2: because it helps with athletic performance. But that's, again, their choice. It's not... It, mm. Part of
4: my job is to find the evidence to give people the choice, it's not then up to us to tell
0: them what to do with that information. Absolutely. And Toro and Nikki, what do you do when a patient or client, client comes to you and is on an array of supplements or wants to take supplements because they view it maybe as the same as pharmaceuticals, it's the nutraceutical form and it's a quick fix. How do you have the conversation with them about supplements versus whole foods? And could you tell our audience when it is necessary to take a supplement?
3: It's a really tricky area because I think a lot of people, a lot of people who come to Penny Brown are really keen on their supplements. I've had people tip out a bag of supplements Mm -hmm. on the table. And then you ask them, why are you taking these? And they mostly don't know. So they'll often say, I read about this and I read about that and I read about the other. And so we have a bit of a conversation about those, and I, absolutely, as you say, and I always come back to the diet side and explain the fact that the body, you know, the synergy of nutrients in real foods is much more available to the body. It works in a very different way. So I think we have a bit of that conversation. I think there are some things that are fairly benign, and so and I think one of the things I'm also very conscious of not doing is to burst someone's bubble all the time. So if someone is taking something that is not going to do them any harm doesn't have any interactions with what they're they're taking medically if they're quite wedded to that and they think it's being helpful to them then essentially i don't want to also say well you're wasting your money because actually then you start to take a bit of that kind of self-care positive approach away but i think for a lot of people it's rationalizing what they're taking so if someone for example doesn't eat oily fish and they're not really having it you know they're not going able to get enough of omega-3 fats in their diet from other sources we might say well actually there's a no reason for having an omega-3 supplement potentially. but actually if they're having that and they're able to have their two or three portions of oily fish and their flax and the chia and their walnuts then i would be saying you really don't need to have that
2: mm-hmm. and i think
3: there are circumstances so if someone's got malabsorption maybe they've got a lot of damage to their intestinal lining from the treatments they are very fatigued, they've got very small appetites.
2: There are, there are strategic objectives with supplements sometimes, but they should be,
3: I think with all supplements, they shouldn't be something you should just go and buy off the shelf and self-prescribe. They should be something that we can sit down and have a, a, a proper conversation around what the diet looks like, what their treatment situation is, what their circumstances are, and then what would be recommended to, to go with that. And, and then I think, it, you know, there's a place for them. But it is strategic rather than just a blanket.
0: Sure. And Toro?
1: So I have this analogy where I talk about music and how when you hear a piece played by a symphony orchestra, you can never just hear one thing. It all works in synergy and together. And you're not going to have just the violins or just the cellos or just the brass instruments or whatever. And we need all of those different elements. And with having a whole food diet, you can get most of the things that you need, you virtually everything that you need, and it's the fibre, for example, that's so important that's not necessarily included in these supplements. That's so important for gut microbiome. And just explain how gut microbiome and the immune system work. Um, I am probably slightly opposite to Nikki in the way that I do talk about cost. I'm like, how much of this is expensive? We and I do, you know, often and obviously they're coming to me because they've chosen to. You know, they know that I'm quite straightforward like that. So we do talk about how whether things, and also just the interactions that they they might know about, like explaining that some of these things may interact with their treatment, they may interact mm-hmm. with you know, other other things they're taking, and lots of food humps, they, they haven't even thought about that. So it's a difficult conversation, but I think there are, like, vitamin D is something I'm really passionate about, so I do recommend that most people take vitamin D because we're quite a deficient nation, uh, particularly in the winter months. Um, so vitamin d that you may have made in your 20s if you're a person of color then obviously melanin is protective so you're going to be making a lot less vitamin d and the public health england recommendations for vitamin d supplement are only for white people so we have to also remember that people of color are going to need different things so it's all of those different things which i take into account Um, i I, i'm really i very rarely suggest that people take supplements again right really try to get them because it's a long-term thing i don't want them to have supplements for their whole life i want them to make those long-term small changes but for a while you may need to transition them especially if they're not able to eat if they're having treatment mm-hmm. and things like that you know and then to uh, trying to get everything from their diet obviously they're vegetarian vegan there are some things that you're going to have to look at supplementing potentially
0: so in summary from what um nikki and toral what you've both said would you say that Vitamin D and omega 3 would be the two that would be the most commonly prescribed because people might be deficient in them and it's important, especially um, those with cancer, to have those two.
1: And then a lot of people go vegan for some reason when they get have cancer, like they have ephemeris. So, B12 and the B sure. vitamins, they're often really deficient in those and iron sometimes. But the thing with iron supplements is they can really mess up your stomach and your gut microbiome. So, mm. I, I try very rarely to do that.
4: Sure. <laughs> I think it's not not uh, what I'm very worried about is the vitamin A and vitamin E supplements being direct, direct antioxidants, and most of the evidence is it actually does harm. Yeah. And that and the problem is you get then the journalists, the press, and you get some weird doctors in Scandinavia, which I came across recently, saying, you know, don't go in and get a, a, a ginger shot from Pret a because it's uh, they're, they're antioxidants, and we and you're going to get antioxidant stress. But it's actually, if you look at the data they're referring to, they only relate to vitamin A and vitamin E trials. You know, whole food, polyphenol, rich foods, they, they they enhance the antioxidant pathway. They're, they're not direct antioxidants. So I do definitely look to see if people are taking vitamin A and vitamin E supplements, unless there's some suspicion they could be deficient in them, but most people aren't. And I would I would say no to them. You've got to be a little bit careful with um, omega-3 fish oil supplements mind you with prostate cancer because yeah. only two studies looking at it showed it increased the risk of prostate cancer I think it was some statistical weird thing and, and in the study what they looked, they didn't take into account that many fish oil supplements have vitamin E added to them as a preservative. And the study they extrapolated the data from was also giving people vitamin E. So I suspect that the answer was that they were just having too much vitamin E rather than the omega-3,
0: and it was just a surrogate endpoint. But nevertheless, as you say, because of that uncertainty, I uh, I I would, like yourselves, I would just make sure, only advise it if they're not having any fish in their diet. Sure. And so we're starting to wrap up now and we've spoken about the prevention and management aspects when it comes to diet and cancer. What about post-treatment? What um, sort of impact does cancer treatment have on the body and requires a dietary approach to somewhat correct perhaps any deficiencies or issues left from the treatment? Would you care to elaborate on this? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a,
4: it's a battering, I mean, not only with the acute treatments, but many cancer patients now are having ongoing biological treatments, you know, Herceptin and Protuzumab or these sort of CD4-6 inhibitors for, for many years. Um, you know, people with metastatic disease now living 10,
2: 15 years and it's, uh, it's hard, you know, and it damages their gut, gives them arthritis, uh, affects brain functioning uh and that's the
4: group and that's the, why the president of asco stood up and said we need to take survivorship more seriously that's the group who really benefit from going to someone like penny Broad, going to we we've we got to think bedford university where some really keen health exercise professionals are putting through people through their paces uh you know exercising trying to really get them to increase their exercise levels that's the group which is going to benefit, not only how they feel, but of course they have a significantly high risk of them developing degenerative diseases like diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, Uh, um, and you know, then you can prevent that, so you know, it's not the end of the story when you put someone into remission or you Mm -hmm. put someone into control, that's the start of the the, the lifestyle and survivorship program
3: as far as I'm concerned, that's where the challenge starts.
0: And, would, I'm. Oh, sorry. Go
3: on. I would. I would agree with that. I think that recovery from treatment phase is so important, and it's a, It's an opportunity then to really, as you say, develop that sustainable lifestyle pattern. And people come out of treatment very fatigued. They often want to have lost weight. They might, you know, their appetite may be low, and so it's kind of really just trying to to, to gradually support them back to eating a wider nutritious diet, and that kind of thinking about the longer term. So, it, yeah, it's a tricky one. There's lots of, you know, so many side effects and symptoms that affect people in such strong ways. But actually, what we know is that, done, as well as, as reducing the risk of progression and, and, and getting cancer, that actually good diet uh, can reduce the risk of side effects and it alleviate some of the side effects as well. So, I think that's really helpful for people to hear that the things we can do to, to improve
1: things, support that recovery. I think thinking about the more surgical aspect of cancer, not just the chemotherapy, which they've covered pretty well. I, I we also, when you've had surgery, particularly if you have had big types of surgery, like mastectomies or part of your colon removed, you know, your body also needs recovery time and protein and amino acids and, you know, to build up that, actually build the new muscle, build up the new cells and things like that. And I think we don't always remember that people's bodies require more nutrients to heal quite, you know. With wounds to heal, and I think that's not something that's often talked about. Wound healing, um, having a good diet can help with wound healing and help, you know, you to fight off any potential mm-hmm. infections and stuff. And I think that's something we really should be a little bit. I mean, especially when you think about the, some of the stuff they feed you in hospital. I mean, I never eat a hospital food. I always take my own food. But I mean, some of the I just think, how is this going to help anyone to heal if they're in there for protracted amount of time?
0: Completely. And thank you for mentioning that topic on wound healing, it's so helpful. I think it is something that is totally overlooked. And um, so just moving a little bit away from the nutrition field, but I think it'll be interesting for our audience to just hear about this from your perspective. Uh, When it comes to evidence around medical marijuana and CBD in terms of cancer treatment, where are we with it, especially in regards to the UK versus the States? So if we start off with um, Dr. Thomas, um, well, I, re- I uh, have a blog called blog.cancer.net.co.uk, and the, the subjects
4: in there are very much driven by patients' questions. So if someone says, you know, should I be taking cannabis, I'm not really sure about it, I'll go off and do it with other people, do an evidence review and post it. So I've got one on cannabis and CBD, or one on sort should you fast during your chemotherapy, all sorts of things. So they're all questions
2: driven. So you... There are some data actually looking at uh, maybe peripheral neuropathy, uh, appetite stimulation, lack of nausea, uh, possibly help
4: with anxiety and sleep. You know, they're not robust studies, but they, you know, they're interesting. And you know, in terms of cancer, you know, the actual you know, the cancer bit is about one paragraph because there are virtually no studies looking at cannabis and cancer. I mean the one, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's some animal data looking at uh, glioblastoma, brain tumours of whether uh, cannabis could enhance uh, telazonomide, which is the agent you give. And there is some interesting suggestions it could. Um, so therefore there's some human studies of which there are three ongoing, and they've been going for six years and they've only recruited a quarter of the patients. So, you know, why is that? So,
0: um, it, you know, there's no study saying it's done any harm and it, you know i wouldn't have any objections if people wanted to take cbdo that's for sure for the other benefits um cannabis is actually sort of illegal in this country so you can't comment on it um but you know there, there isn't it's not like a conspiracy theory hiding the data there just isn't any data of course have you had in your practice at Penny Brown or, or um, in your practice store, have you had patients ask you about CBD? It does seem to be quite a trendy thing at the moment.
1: Yes. Yeah, people ask. People do ask. And again, I always say well, there's not that much evidence yet. I'm not saying that there won't be and it can't be. Evidence. But personally, I, I don't want to... You know, I'm also conscious of from the legal perspective. It's not legal. So I'm also really conscious of that. And I even mean, if they are taking other forms, like, you know, I just yeah I, I try to veer away from those things a little bit but obviously people are going to take and i've had lots of people anecdotally talk
3: about you know how it's helped them and i have to just let them. one of the most commonly taken supplements i want be a better word um and i think certainly when it's interesting at pennybron when you hear their dinner time conversation uh, you know, when, it, when they're away from all the practitioners, everyone's discussing which brand of CBD oil they're using, etc. And, you know, anecdotally, people find it very beneficial. And I think so. I think the key point for me is always, is it going to be harmful? When might it be harmful? And therefore, if we can share that information. Otherwise, if it's helpful and it's not harmful, then, you know, go through your life if you want to do that and if you feel better for it. I'm also conscious that with some of these things, there is that placebo effect too. Yeah, exactly.
1: uh, Negate the placebo effect, helping people, especially if they're feeling emotionally stressed. So I sometimes, you know, if they, if they think it's helping, it's not harming them. Leave them to it. I, I think. I think there is. I, I have definitely had people saying they sleep better, feel less anxious. The trouble is, I I posted something on Facebook saying, you know,
4: there were some benefits, and then I was kicked off Facebook for mentioning the word CBD because Zuckerberg took offence to it and now I'm banned. Which I find also very uh, distressing that the global social media gurus can decide what we can and can't talk about. But that's a different subject
0: completely. Anyways, just to finish up now, I ask everyone who comes on the podcast because I assume everyone who comes on is a foodie themselves. So, um, starting off with Toral, what would be your ideal last supper? So, a bit morbid, but if you had one day left to live, what would be your ideal data, main, and dessert? <laughs> I'm thinking you
1: didn't ask me to think
0: about breakfast. I was thinking
1: about breakfast. No, that's fine. So I am a huge fan of Mexican food and Italian food, but I think i am have to get me ceviche, tacos, and then some sort of chocolate dessert, and cheese, because obviously cheese is life, really.
3: So yeah, there we go.
0: And moving on, on to Nikki, what would be your ideal supper? I would go for um, Prawns
3: cooked with olive oil, ginger, chili, and garlic with some rocket salad. And then my obsession at the moment is Mira Soda's cooking. I don't know if you know Mira Soda's Made in India book. She's got this amazing salad, which is spiced chickpeas with radish and pomegranate and cucumber. And and then with fish with this herby um, coconut crust, which is amazing. And then I think my dessert would be the most delicious strawberries I could find dipped in 85% dark chocolate with creme fraiche.
0: How it's tasty. Delicious. And last but not least...
4: Uh, You you stole my dessert, I was going to say. I was was interviewed on Lithuanian TV. Don't ask me how that ever
2: happened. I
4: thought I was a chef and I can't cook for toffee. So all I could get was milk some dark chocolate and dip some strawberries in and uh, wave that and say, you've got everything, haven't you? You've got all the goodness of the fruit, the taste of the chocolate, the polyphenols in the chocolate, without any... Uh, downside you know so but i i actually i love a quinoa and uh salad where you get the quinoa and you get the salad and you get the radishes and you mix it all together with onions um and various spices as as a main course with uh sometimes with fish sometimes just on its own that would be and and a starter well i can't really think of a starter maybe some cheese
0: with vitamin k2 in it you can join They all sound super tasty and then so just to finish off, what would be your take home messages to our audience for them to have some advice on best tips to eat well for health and what resources would you recommend? So I'm
1: going to start with eat the rainbow, like it sounds really basic but you know the rainbow if you just eat something each colour of the rainbow throughout the day, then you're getting a good seven or eight portions of, and then if you include white as well, you you can get a good seven or eight portions of fruit and vegetables. And once you're having that, then you can, hopefully, I don't know how much space you can have for everything else, but I think having, for me, one of the things that comes up with a lot of my people that I work with is how, what about, how do you get that organized? Yeah, we're all busy. I say twice a week, prepare up a load of vegetables, whether it's roasting, blanching, steaming, topping, and keep them ready in the fridge. Because then it's easy to assemble a meal quickly, and if you're thinking about doing it then, when you're hungry and you're stressed and you're tired, you're not going to want it. You're going to reach for something that's probably fast food or you know maybe not as nutritious. So those are my tips: are eat the rainbow, prepare, and I also use a veg- like a seasonal vegetable box, and that way you're also changing the fruits and vegetables that you're eating all year round with what's in season. So that's my kind of takeaway message with general health and cancer
0: and online resources in terms um of people who have cancer or any sort of chronic disease and are looking for nutrition resources
1: um gosh that's a difficult one i think um some of the let me think so first of all i I quite like vegetable boxes so um things like riverford and odd boxes are amazing because it all the odd fruit and vegetables are used up and i get an odd boxes and they're sometimes they're funny shapes and things like that but it's also great for the environment but it's also good because you just get a box full of fruit and vegetables um, i really like ethical butcher where they um ethically raise animals but also from a regenerative farming perspective um, the sustainable dish is an interesting person to follow on instagram they talk a lot about regenerative farming i can't think right now because my brains still.
0: sure and nikki okay called so Penny Braun, Penny Braun, Penny Braun. Of course,
3: Penny In terms of kind of summarising everything, I guess I would say there's such a vast amount of information, research and, and all of that kind of stuff on cancer and nutrition. I think I, last time I looked on PubMed, it was like seven or 8,000 studies in 12 months. And ultimately, I think a lot of it comes down to some basics of like reduce the processed foods and increase the real plant, colourful plant foods. So I always use as a takeaway, I quite like Michael Pollan's food rule, um, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think ultimately that sums up most of the nutrition research I've ever done. So I think there's a kind of, so that simplicity of message is really important. In terms of resources, I would tend to, for people who want to know more, I would recommend looking at the WCOS and 2018 expert report. I often recommend people to cite tutorial for recipe Nation that kind of thing, Dr. Rupi, obviously Penny Brown. Um, and there's, you know, so, and then I think also lots of recipe book inspiration or recipe site information that's not about cancer. I think sometimes the last thing you want to do when you have cancer is have it in your face all the time. And so uh, we give that list of kind of rec- rec- recommendations just for really lovely books, which, you know, just rec- medicinal chef, uh, people like that, Hemsley and Hemsley have some nice stuff, just things the way you can, you can just make lovely healthy food it's just proper food without thinking i'm on a cancer diet here and and so yeah looking for looking for inspiration where you can find it and dr thomas uh,
4: well i i'm not a chef for anything but I, I normally say look think think of the amount of fruit veg and nuts you eat in a day and try and visualize that and then multiply it by five that's for most of my patients
0: A spree recently and it's not really helped me
4: <laughs> oh, but it's always the start they always say that in the because I, I, I started working with the athletes now in, in the university as a sports a professional sports medicine and they said it, you know it is actually true you, you can buy the stuff
0: first and it gives you that psychological absolutely uh, get a good pair pay, spend hundred quid on a pair of training because you're more likely to use them exactly and why not why not treat yourself so, Professor Rob, you've got a book out at the moment called How to Live. How exciting. Can you tell us a bit about it and how it came about?
4: Well, thanks, Ali, for allowing me to promote it, I suppose. Um, well, as a research scientist and a doctor interested in lifestyle and nutrition, I've been writing uh, evidence reviews and conducting studies for over 25 years now. Uh, but those have been published in sort of medical journals, some of which are read, and it can influence colleagues um and uh, you know healthcare providers but really um, to change a behavior in as many people as possible uh, you've got to reach out to, to the public and obviously a book is uh, is the ultimate way to do that especially if it's successful um so within the book we've summarized our research but also research from across the world uh, and um, you know it's doing
0: quite well so hopefully it will change behavior of um people who read it brilliant and what made you decide to call it how to live where was the inspiration Uh, from uh, well that's a good point Uh, that was really outside my control
4: to be perfectly honest Uh, it's the publisher's decision Uh, it's a little bit of play on words on a very successful book called how not to die um, where we wanted to say look it's not just about avoiding life-threatening illnesses it's about how to improve your quality of your life on a daily basis so a lot of the evidence uh we refer to relates to reducing things like osteoarthritis, joint pains, how to minimize hot flushes, how to improve your mood um um, and you know ultimately other things like you know reducing the risk of cancer, uh, diabetes, obesity etc. So all the all these factors have a very fundamental influence on people's quality of life. So we want to say it's not just about avoiding dying; it's about improving, uh, you know, your, your feeling of well-being on a daily basis. So I think it fits that uh, fairly
0: well. And tell us about the process of writing it. Was it a very different way of working to being a consultant oncologist? Was it a different kind of use of your brain? Tell us. Um,
4: well, actually you know one thing about you know being a doctor is we have to try to develop a skill of um, getting quite complex medical data and explain it to people who have no medical qualifications I mean that's part of our job which we all have to learn as medical students and, and ongoing so it is a bit like that process so if you think about it you know when you are explaining um, when a patient says to you you know what can I do to help myself you know, I've read on the Internet this and that about vitamins or you know, antioxidants or phytochemicals. It is our job to actually be able to process that data and explain it in, in easy chunks, which people can understand. So to be honest, um, you know, it's quite hard work. It took four years of writing and it was rewritten probably about 30 times. Um, so the process is quite arduous but very rewarding as well, and especially when you feel you've got it right, which I do in this book. I wouldn't say I've got it right in previous books all the time, um, but I think the balance is there. Um, Also, you have to accept that when you write a book, it's a little bit more complex than say writing a patient information material, which would go out to all your patients, whereas a book really goes out to the people who choose to buy it. So their level of understanding is normally a little bit higher. Um, And what I've tried to do um, is make it a bit different to all the other books which are out there and explain the biochemistry of our body and how our biochemical processes are affected by, say, nutrition, and how then, when these biological processes go wrong, they affect chronic degenerative diseases, which includes cancer and diabetes. And you know some people say well it's a little bit technical in places but i've not had any complaints and as you know ali there's it's it's a big change for many people to start changing their lifestyle and nutrition and if they really understand why and they're convinced that what they're going to do really does matter they're more likely to succeed more likely to start doing those interventions and continue them which is the issue because as you know it's not Mm. just about changing your lifestyle today it's about changing your lifestyle
0: for the next 10 years which matters so do you give any tips on um how people can increase their readiness to change or do you think that the people who are already buying your book are already on that trajectory to be ready to implement things in their lifestyle um you know know, that's a very very good point i mean you know the best way to influence
4: uh people who need it is to get out there and give talks and to, um, you know, influence as many patients as you want, because the decision to buy a book, you are probably already halfway along. Um, so, you know, that, that's the only negative thing about a book, but, you know, there's a lot of confusion out there. I mean, it's, it's quite, um depressing when you you know you hear people saying i read in the newspaper that i shouldn't go to Pret a and have a ginger shot because i read that antioxidants cause cancer you know and you say you know th- this is and um, this is people who are you know pretty bright and they're totally confused because i you just even on that subject you know and anti- you know there are thousands of chemicals which may influence the antioxidant or the inflammatory process or you know, Affect oxidative stress, and when you want to learn to that level, um, you know, even if you're quite well read, I think this book does address that because it really breaks it down, and um, you know, it, it actually does really explain, you know, how
2: foods affect the antioxidant process and how some can actually make it worse and some can make it better, and how
4: as an individual, you can sort of look at your own diet and then modulate it to uh, um, or make changes to really improve your outcome. So I do think there's a place for it, and I don't think it's just that you know you're preaching to the converted. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but it does take you know it does take a little bit of concentration in parts.
0: Definitely. Well, I think that's plenty to whet the appetites of our lovely listeners. They just have to go and buy the book. So tell us where it's available. Um, as I said, this is this is my first book, which is actually with a grown-up publisher. So uh, <laughs> they do all that.
4: Um, uh, you know, basically you just put the name into the internet and about 500 choices come up, you know, Amazon or, or uh, there's a website I'm, I'm involved in called keephealthy.com. But uh, I mean, you can just... Google it and it comes up everywhere, Waterstones, W.A. Smith and all that.
0: Well, that's very exciting. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Exactly. And finally, where can everyone find you online if they want to follow your work, whether it's Instagram, Twitter or website? Um,
4: well, I've sort of got a Facebook. I don't know if I'm still on there, but CancelNet UK is my sort of handle. I've got a blog, which is fairly active blog.cancernet.co.uk, which we try to have evidence-based reviews on there, as I say, questions asked by, by patients. I do get involved in another website called keephealthy.com. It's not actually mine, but I, I do some posts on that. Uh, but Cancernet is my generally old website, which needs updating, so apologies for all the sort of redundant pages. But there is a there is a page I tried to keep updated, 20 lifestyle tips to fight cancer, which I tried to keep Updated and and I also refer people to Penny Bron. I think I'm a you know I'm a big fan to be honest. Um, I think you undersold yourself there, Nikki. I think it's, maybe a, it's spot on what I would agree with.
0: And I've got all the Penny Bron details from the last podcast, um, having Catherine on. So I will put that in the show notes. And Toral, your Instagram, Twitter, and um, website. Instagram.
1: Is at the Urban Kitchen website is the UrbanKitchen.co.uk and Twitter is Urban Kitchen, but I'm Less on Twitter because it's a bit mean sometimes. Um, but yeah, you can find me. I'm, I'm often doing Instagram lives talking about you know nutrition and different aspects of health and you know, health disparity and things too. So there's lots of live videos up there. So
0: exactly, we loved having you on our Instagram live the other week. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining. It's been an absolute pleasure and such a diverse conversation. I'm sure the audience will love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Wow. Another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on NutriTank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. NutriTank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. NutriTank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and wellbeing through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit NutriTank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals with advice So please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.